Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today I'm talking to a well-known person in the field of interpretation in the United States, Dr. Larry Beck, recently retired professor from the L. Robert Payne School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at San Diego State University. Dr. Beck has authored or co-authored several books, including The Gifts of Interpretation, and most recently as lead author on Interpreting Cultural and Natural Heritage for a Better World. He received the Fellow Award from the National Association for Interpretation, the organization's highest honor, and the Distinguished Faculty Award for Outstanding Contributions to San Diego State University, its highest honor. Over the past five years, he's been writing a series for Legacy Magazine, or NAI, titled Justice for All. For those contributions and support of diversity, equity, and inclusion, he received NAI's President's Award in 2022. Hi, Larry. It's great to see you again. Because we do this on Zoom, we see each other, and our, our listeners won't get that. But it's it's great to have you here with me in person. Great to see you again as well, Tim. It, it seems like it's been a long time. It has. You know, I, I left... NAI in 2012, so what's that, 11 years, and mm. you've been on the Big Island almost 10, so um, we just don't get to the mainland for things the way we used to, so. Yeah, at least a decade. Well, part of the joy of this doing this podcast for me has been I get to talk to old friends and colleagues that I don't see often enough. I do appreciate that you're wearing an Aloha shirt. Um, yeah, I did my best for you, Tim. Actually, you can see. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I like that. Well, I'm, I'm, I've got a, I think a red-tailed hawk flying on mine. So, <laughs> uh, I don't. I really don't know a lot about your early years in the profession. Where did you grow up? What's kind of what got you into this field? Okay, so I grew up in Riverside, California. That's east of Los Angeles, about fifty some odd miles. And at the time, uh, there were a whole bunch of orange groves and uh, lots of hills to explore. And that ultimately became developed over the years, but that was a good place to grow up and sort of be out in nature and enjoy um, the kind of a, a real nice place in terms of climate and proximity to culture and so on. So uh, that's where I grew up. My parents uh, were both teachers, so we had summers off. And we would travel to the mountains and we would travel to the beach and uh, we would camp. So I had a chance to be out in nature and that was a pretty lucky way to grow up, I'm, I'm sure. So uh, I, I eventually went to college at UC Riverside. There's a University of California campus in Riverside. So I wound up at UCR. And uh, I was a biology major. And my understanding, you studied zoology and botany, I believe, in college. Yeah, zoology major, botany minor, and a teacher's certificate. Okay, yeah. So so we've got a commonality of interest there. And I just fell in love with the field courses, uh, the vertebrate field biology, the, the ornithology, and the herpetology, uh, the 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 plant science. Uh, I think my favorite course was general entomology. It was a five-unit course, six hours lab and three hours lecture every week. And Dr. Brown taught the class. And in the UC system, it's a research university. 
uh, he only taught one class a year, oh. and that was the class. That was it. The rest of his time was research. But boy, was he great. Too bad that he didn't teach more than that. So uh, I, I enjoyed the field classes so much that I transferred to Humboldt to pursue a degree in natural resource planning and interpretation. So I, I moved from Riverside up to the Redwoods and then eventually went on to graduate school. Where did you go to grad school? Oh, well, ultimately, uh, the University of Minnesota is where I got my PhD. Okay. And, and so, and, and I can tell you uh, more about that if, if, if you'd like. Well, I'm just curious, uh, what was your PhD specifically in? Masters and PhD were both in education, and you can see how that might translate into an interest in interpretation. Sure. Yeah. I'm yeah. You know, I'm similar. I, I ended up doing a master's in botany rather than a zoology because my zoology department, I have jokingly referred to as the department of necrology. And uh, <laughs> until you got into graduate level courses with them, virtually everything was in a laboratory dissecting something and the smell of formalin. And I actually moved to the botany department because they were much more field oriented. And you actually got to spend time with um, the big name professors up there, and you really didn't get that so much with them in the zoology department. Uh, I had the chair of the zoology department was Harvey Fisher, who was famous back then for his studies of the Goonie birds on Wake and Midway Islands, uh, hired by the Navy. And he had a lot of great stories to tell. He didn't teach anymore. And that was <laughs> typical in that program. Um, when I think about interpretation, I didn't learn about it until 1974, and I got out of um, master's degree work in 68, and I was a working interpreter for three years before I ever even heard the term, and of course, mm. Tilden's book had been around since 57, but nobody in my program in Illinois had <laughs> mentioned it as a resource or even knew that the field existed. How did you learn about the field? Well, I guess sort of similarly, uh, because I was working for Riverside County Parks, again, where I grew up, and I was uh, going to college there for several years before going to Humboldt. And uh, initially, I worked for the county parks there doing maintenance, but then I got a job doing interpretation. And Rich Koopman was my supervisor. He's been involved with NAI over the years. And he's the one who handed me the book and said, you need to read this. And I was just so excited to be doing interpretation. And then I read this book. And I think you had a similar experience, just this aha experience. This is what I'm doing. This is, uh, this is what it's all about. So, uh, but it was uh, working for county parks for three summers while I was going to college. Uh, and, and again, working outdoors and then ultimately being able to work myself from maintenance into an interpretive position. And I just heard that story from Clark Hancock. He was hired at Austin and Nature Center as a maintenance worker, and it worked into being in charge of exhibit design and uh, visitor experience and all, a, a whole lot of other things. Um, I'm fascinated that you brought up Rich Koopman because he was who, when I was uh, president of Association of Interpretive Naturalists, he was one of the three people I appointed to be on our committee and meet with three people 
from Western interpreters that Alan Kaplan appointed to work out the merger or consolidation of the two groups to create National Association for Interpretation. And I didn't know he had ever worked in Riverside, California. Yeah, yeah. And and then, yeah, on, on into Arizona, I think, was the, the last I knew. I haven't uh, kept tabs on what he's been doing for decades. He was in Boulder when I met him. He was in Boulder, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a fascinating trajectory we end up on because you did you what did you think you were going to do with all of your career before this crystallized as an interpretive professor? Well, what I guess I originally thought was biology major, pre-med, this sort of thing, go on, be a doctor of some sort. Oh. And then I just fell in love with the field courses. So, uh, and then again, the background as a kid, being outdoors and exploring nature, uh, it was sort of a natural thing to move in the direction that I did. Well, I never had a fantasy about being a doctor, despite the many pre-med students I went to school with. I uh, I didn't do extremely well in chemistry or physics, and uh, they seemed to think that was important in medicine. So I, I didn't, I was going to be a biology teacher in high school. Uh, I'm aware, when did you, you start at San Diego State? Was that your first faculty position? Sort of. Um, I, I taught for community colleges initially. I got a oh. community college credential uh, for the state of California, and you can do so with a bachelor's degree and experience. And with my county park experience and some experience with the National Park Service, I was able to piece together a community college credential. So I was teaching at City College and Mesa College here in San Diego, and then got on as a lecturer at San Diego State. And for some reason, you went off to Kansas State for a period of time. Right. So what happened is that when I was a lecturer, I, I had a master's degree. And so I'm going to back up the story just a little bit uh, because it explains why I went to Minnesota. And that is my department chair at the time, Dan Dustin, uh, who continues to be a dear friend, uh, and I just recently saw him in Santa Fe, he and his wife, Vicki, and I went out to, to visit him. Well, he was department chair. He came to see me in my office. He said, it appears that you really enjoy teaching. You have a passion for education. The students love your classes. And I think it's time for you to move on. You, you, need, to, you need to move on, Larry. Ooh. And so I was feeling both pretty good about myself <laughs> and uh, pretty lousy because I thought he just told me that uh, I got fired. And, um, but he continued and he said, Larry, the thing is that if you want a future in higher education, you need to move on. And that is you need to get your PhD because if you don't have your PhD, San Diego State University, you will never get hired on as an assistant professor and be able to move through the ranks to an associate and then a full professor. And so I didn't really want to leave San Diego, but uh, what he told me made sense. Uh, some of the best advice I've ever gotten in my life. And he said, you need to go to University of Minnesota. It's the best university in the country. Now, that was part of his humor. He got his PhD from the University oh, of Minnesota. <laughs> so, yeah. And so uh, off I go to Minnesota. I get my PhD. And an opening, uh, it was a full-time lecture position at San Diego State, came up. 
And uh, so I uh, was able to get that position, which eventually evolved into the uh, tenure track position uh, as an assistant professor. So, so although I didn't want to leave San Diego and I wound up in Minnesota, uh, it, it's a great school, that great people. And ultimately the silver lining is that I came back and had a future. But how did you end up in Kansas State for a little while? Okay, so as the story continues, we got into budget trouble. Uh, the state of California in the early 1990s. Bad. And the president of the university unilaterally eliminated 10 departments. And ours was one of them. And we've just been uh, identified as the number one program in the nation in faculty scholarship. And he cut us anyway. So, uh, but he was cutting chemistry. He was cutting physics. Uh, he, he cut aerospace engineering. He just, he, he, he went on a rampage. And it was unfortunate. And students weren't happy because they no longer had a major. And he told them, well, look, <laughs> there's not really a problem. Uh, you either choose another major or you go to another school. And so they weren't very happy with that response. Um, and uh, he wasn't very diplomatic. But in the midst of all this, um, I needed work. So I applied at Kansas State University, got the job. Once again, didn't want to leave San Diego, but uh, I did. And once again, a unique and beautiful environment, the Flint Hills in Kansas and, uh, you know, good basketball team, good football team there and all of that. Uh, eventually, things got restructured back at San Diego State and I was able to come back, but it's only because uh, the administration had been hounding me to, you know, either send in a letter of resignation or say that you're coming back. And finally, I wrote a letter of resignation. I got tired of it. And I stuck the, the letters I wrote, one to the dean and one to the chair of the department, as I was instructed by the president's office, put both letters to the dean and department chair in the same envelope and addressed it to my department chair. Well, about a month after that happened, he called me and he said, do you want your job back? And I said, I can't have my job back because, as you know, I resigned a month ago and said that I had fruitful employment here at Kansas State University. And he said, well, I put that letter in my desk and the dean, I never gave her her copy. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> yeah, yeah. So so um, and so I came back to San Diego State. And the silver lining in, in that episode is that I met Ted Cable. And Ted told that story beautifully as well. And when, when I chatted with him, um, I found it very interesting what you went through only because my first job, real job, was Southern Illinois University Outdoor Laboratory, which was a wonderful 15,000 acre or so facility um, 10 miles from the SIU main campus. And I, I became very quickly the director of environmental programs, ran uh, environmental workshops for high school students on a year-round basis, did a summer nature program for special needs kids. And uh, it was a great job. And suddenly the university had a budget cut. Simple solution. Eliminate everyone who doesn't have a PhD. I, oh. only, I only had a master's. and. Yeah. It caused me to, to 
the entire time I was a state park interpreter, I worked on a PhD in speech communications because I I thought I'm not going to be told that again. You're not educated, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That well, and what what Dan Dustin told me way back when about you need that if you want to have a future, and that's amazing that the same thing happened to you. Well, and it sometimes it's it's reality of life. Uh, many years later, I would be a one of the managers at Land Between the Lakes in Kentucky. And Tennessee Valley Authority said, oh, we're going to give it all back to the Forest Service. And you can move to, you have a, a doctorate in communications. You'd be a great PR person for one of our nuclear power plants. So you can transfer. Or you can take six months salary and go away. I said, pick me. Give me the, the six months salary. <laughs> and, of course. And yeah. ended up being the transition to being executive director at NAI and Fort Collins, Colorado. So uh, we're, we're kind of Phoenix-like. Uh, occasionally they put us in the ashes and we just rise above it and go do something else. And that's good. Yeah, yeah, it is good. Yeah. But you really found a home at San Diego State. How many years total? Oh, uh, so there was a little off and on, as I explained, but 43 years. Wow. Yeah, right. yeah, long, long yeah. time. And, and the, 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 the absences were short. Uh, Kansas State was only a, a semester. You mentioned uh, meeting Ted. It ended up being fortuitous because you you gentlemen have written books together and with Doug Knudsen. And mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what what do you remember about those books that's important to you? What Because I, I know people in our field treasure them. Uh, Gifts of Interpretation has been one of the most beloved books in our training that we've done uh, over the years. So what do, you, what do you recall about them? What do you think about? Well, it, it started with Ted going on sabbatical to Africa for a year in the midst of writing a textbook with Doug Knudsen. Uh, Doug had written probably the definitive text on outdoor recreation, and he and Ted had talked about doing something similar in the field of interpretation. Uh, Grant Sharp's book uh, was no longer in print, and you remember that. So there really was nothing at the time, and uh, Ted brought me on board, and that was just before he's leaving on sabbatical, and he's going back and forth with the, the technology or lack of technology where he was in Africa, uh, but we were able to to put the textbook together, and it came out in 1995. And then just three years later, uh, the first edition of Interpretation for the 21st Century uh, came out. And then we were involved in second editions and third editions and changes of titles. Uh, a little book that NAI uh, printed, uh, we wrote, uh, is titled Interpretive Perspectives. So we've, we've, we've probably, over all those years, been working on a book at any given time, more so than not working on a book at any given time. Well, I was honored that you invited me to write a, a foreword for your first gifts book. And uh, you actually have had three right. different people do that. Right, right. So yeah, we had talked about this uh, in advance of the podcast. And I, I mentioned that I wanted to just share an excerpt Please from do. each of... Okay, so uh, again, you were the first 
edition. And this is when you were, of course, executive director of NAI. And you wrote, those of us who have studied, practiced, and taught interpretive principles over the past 30 years have rightfully paid regular homage to Tilden. He spoke to the profession so clearly and eloquently that it became the standard, almost unquestioned. We say, quote, Tilden's six principles of interpretation, unquote, as if there could be no more. Who would dare look for more of them? And then you go on, the authors even find Tilden's principles in need of a tune-up. <laughs> it seems like a sacrilege. It is not. Okay, so so what happened is we, we did sort of the unexpected. As you point out, no one was thinking about more principles. There were six, and that was that. But something that we did in the book, and I think is just critical for people to understand, is that we went back to Enos Mills and his writing. And what we found, and we cited chapter and verse in the book, is that he basically said the same thing as Tilden, but never identified that as a principle. Yep. He never orchestrated everything in a listing of principles as Tilden did, but he said the same thing. And I think that's critical in understanding the history of the profession. Tilden wasn't necessarily the first. Enos Mills was writing about these things, but he had not categorized them in the way that Tilden had. Now, not to take anything away from Tilden, uh, his, his eloquent work and something that is, is landmark in the profession, but Enos Mills is in there too, and we wanted to recognize that. Okay, now we're going to go to John Luzader, who wrote the foreword to the second edition. And again, a short excerpt. He wrote at the very end of his foreword. This is John Luzader. Since the day I was made aware of the first edition of this book, I have digested, used, and trained with both texts, Interpreting Our Heritage by Tilden and Interpretation for the 21st Century, Beck and Cable. I have had the pleasure of knowing all three authors. And now I regularly challenge my students with, quote, it is up to you to come up with the 16th, 17th, and 18th principles of interpretation. The groundwork has been laid. And so, so what what he what what you took from all of this is someone has challenged this notion of just six principles of interpretation. And John Luzader says perhaps there's more out there. And 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 then Ted and I would be honored if we're part of the historical progression of looking at this philosophy of um, how our field operates. And ours is more of a philosophical treatise than, let's say, a how-to type of book. But I want to end with uh, Sam Ham, uh, who I know has been on your podcast. Sam Ham, uh, who is legendary in in our field, wrote the foreword to the third edition. Okay, so now here's Sam, and you, you'll like this. Uh, this is in the middle of his foreword. So what's with the gifts metaphor? Or is it even a metaphor? And he goes on, whatever doubts I might have harbored had vanished by the end of the first chapter, the gift of a spark. Yes, the spark an interpreter might ignite in someone else is nothing short of a gift. It is given not only freely by the interpreter, but it is the potential to catalyze the spark that validates the interpreter's role in the first place. And, and 
I think that's one of the best sentences ever. So I'll, t I'll read it again. So this is Sam. He says, uh, this is Gift of the Spark. It is given not only freely by the interpreter, but it is the potential to catalyze the spark that validates the interpreter's role in the first place. I, I love that sentence. And then he goes on, he says, so went my thinking through each and every one of the 15 chapters. Yes, I thought, Larry and Ted are right. This too is a gift. And so I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that there has been, even with this book, an evolution. What were writings back in the early 1900s by Enos Mills became something that became somewhat of the Bible of interpretation in the late 1950s. And Tilden had the, the second edition, 67, third edition, 77. Uh, Ted and I now have three editions uh, to, to complement Tilden's work. But what we did in the gifts book, so by now we're at the third edition, what we did is for each of the 15 guiding principles of interpretation, we associated each one of those with a gift. And then Sam eloquently explained that, yes, indeed, these are gifts. And I think what's important is for interpreters to understand that this is what the profession at its deep, deepest level is all about. I still teach uh, the Certified Interpretive Guide course via Zoom. And we always go through your your 15 principles and we spend time on several of them in detail, especially number eight on technology, because we have so been transformed by the technological innovations of the last 30 years. And uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm both amused and disturbed when I pull up to a restaurant or to a any kind of queue, any kind of line of people, and you see all these couples and families and people standing around, and everybody's standing looking at their phone. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, the big challenge, I, I think, is, is just what you gentlemen introduced so well is that uh, we don't need to run away from technology. We need to figure out how to use it appropriately and and allow it to make something a better experience, but uh, to just yeah. use it to use it perhaps is not the way to to, to think of innovations. And but we we emphasize a number of your different principles beyond those first six that are very similar to Tilden's. I I love it that you brought up Enos Mills because I've said many times to young interpreters and guides, if you want to read another book that gets you into the history of the field, read Adventures of a Nature Guide. Because many times Enos Mills said the things that I see reverberating in the textbooks of the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Uh, he was a great observer and he was, he was training guides and he was aware uh, when he said things like, it's not the destination, it's the journey, you know? And, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, all part of our history and, and a very important part. One of the joys in putting together that, that first edition of the book was reading very carefully Adventures of a Nature Guide to find the commonalities with Tilden. And lo and behold, uh, they, they, kept, they, they just kept popping up.
Yeah, I still use his story of a thousand-year-old tree to talk about uh, a brilliant piece of interpretive writing where mm -hmm. uh, he ignites your interest in thinking about what that tree has been a, an observer of in thousand years that it stood there and what it's been inflicted with. He found a musket ball and projectile points and uh, fire signs of fire at various years and it was a big ponderosa pine that had been cut down but uh, he, he really had an amazing history himself and of course he tracked some of his inspiration uh, back to John Muir having met John Muir on a beach in California and mm -hmm. yeah. spent time with him and I, I think actually took him to Hetch Hetchy and Yosemite Valley and said, you've got to write about these things. You've got to lead people out of here and, and get them turned on to this. And wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we keep connecting the dots and you're, you're one of those important dots in the, in the history because of what you've written. And I'm sure to your students, um, your teaching program was interpretation only, or did you teach courses beyond interpretation? Yeah, I, I taught in interpretation and uh, a course called Principles of Outdoor Education for years and decades. I taught those courses. And then I actually, uh, by request of my department, got shifted into teaching large general education courses. And so uh, I, I was uh, in lecture halls teaching 80 to 130 students. Uh, and those courses uh, included, I'll just mention my favorite of them all, uh, one with the, the somewhat attractive title, Wilderness and the Leisure Experience. And so it, basically I could do anything I wanted with it, and I did. So, uh, and that course evolved over the years, but I just love that course and um, the, the, the some of the, the readings that that I had for the course. And then with the technology, you're bringing in videos and podcasts and just so much you can do right now in, in terms of teaching. And, and I loved teaching. Uh, I, I can't think of too many other professions, except perhaps interpretation, uh, where you get paid for talking to people about something you have a passion for. And in this case, I, I got 75 minute blocks of time if I was on a Tuesday, Thursday schedule. And I had a Wednesday night class, and it was two hours and forty minutes. And of course, I would include the students that we we would uh, we we would have discussions and uh, all, all of that. But but I was able to orchestrate that, and and I loved it. And I'm going to miss it actually. Uh, I, I already know that. Well, as you probably remember, I uh, retired from NAI, and we moved to the Big Island, and very soon learned that there was a job teaching it. Hawaii Community College in uh, hospitality and tourism it wasn't exactly the course I wanted to teach, but it was a chance to teach again. I I spent 30 years as junk faculty members. Every time I had a job as a nature center director or the executive director of NAI, I immediately found the closest university and applied to be a junk faculty and ended up teaching interpretation at Colorado State for about 10 years, about 12 years. And uh, Loved it. And sometimes they had 120 students in a class. Oh, wow. So you had big classes too. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I agonized over it because I 
included the certified interpretive guide in the course after we developed that program. And I was aware that uh, it was just a lot of students to put through that thing. And so about two thirds of them would pay for the certification. The other third said, oh no, I'll endure the curriculum, but I'm not gonna pay for uh, the credential. And uh-huh. it, it ended up being a lot of fun, but a lot of work. And uh, they gave me a TA and she was helpful, <laughs> but uh, the classes were too big. Interp classes should be small. Oh yeah, yeah. I think when I was teaching the interp class, well, it had a limit of 24. So, uh, and I think same with the outdoor education class, we actually had um, an enrollment capacity for that. It was the general education courses that were 100 plus. Yeah, I had that as well. They, because uh, the program was called Natural Resources, Recreation and Tourism at that time at Colorado State, they had me teaching a very basic recreation course, but kind of the one-on-one course. And that would be 200 people in a auditorium. And I, you know, it was, it is what it is when you teach, uh, you love some of your assignments and some of them are just assignments. Mm-hmm. Right. San Diego state, a research, uh, program. Did you do research throughout that period? Yes, yes. Uh, and it is a publisher parish environment, so you, you have to publish. Uh, and yeah, I, I did research over the years, uh, was able to go on to mentor most of our incoming faculty. And there was kind of a joy in that uh, to see them get promoted and tenured. Uh, and, and that's a big deal in our field. So, uh, but but yeah, did did enjoy that aspect as well. Uh, the the biggest grant I was on was a three million dollar grant with the National Cancer Institute, and it had to do with sun safety and outdoor recreation environments. It was sort of a uh, project, but but my heart was always in interpretation, and that's that's uh, even though I wasn't necessarily teaching that as much anymore. And a young woman, uh, Crystal, just, I, I kind of handpicked her to move into that slot. And she's also offering the uh, certified interpretive guide, as you did in the courses you taught. Uh, but she's very active in the interpretive field. And so I felt that was in good hands. The wilderness course that I told you that I love so much uh, has been turned over to someone who's uh, just finishing his Ph.D., and I hope that uh, he'll be able to move from a lecture position, ultimately, as I did, to a position. So it, it's kind of nice to know the courses are in good hands, uh, but you're going to miss doing it. And guest lectures aren't the same thing for me. That that's that, I, I want my own class. I want to know the students. I want to get emails from them that has a link to something I'll be interested in. And the thing is, I was almost always interested in what they said. I, and it, you would think in some of it, you're, you're just going to have to, you're not going to have time for, but time and time again, they would recommend something. And um, so, yeah, good times. Well, I I think through the years when I was at uh, NAI as executive director, 
one of the frustrations I felt uh, was I watched a number of the strong programs and interpretation around the United States die when a faculty member retired. And there's always that other group of faculty members going, oh, there's a position available that really ought to be someone allied with my subfield, not doing what that person was doing. So that's great that you that the program is still there. San Diego State's still going to be a strong program. In the, I think in the so. Field. Yeah. How did, how's the field changed over your period of your career? Because have you observed it changing quite a bit or? Just so dramatically with the changing of the times. And I, I always chuckle about when Tilden had sort of forecast the future and said, yeah, with the technology, we'll probably see more slideshow presentations. And <laughs> I mean, he would roll over in his grave if he knew what was going on right now with computers and the internet and artificial intelligence. Uh, it, it's hard to even address this. Things are moving so quickly. So that's one aspect. Uh, the the other thing is both good and bad. The good is that we're finding many interpretive sites telling a fuller story of the nation's history. And that's something I, I've been visiting these interpretive sites over the last five years. And uh, this uh, these different places are the subject of a column that I've been writing in Legacy titled Justice for All. And so it's reassuring to see um, all of these things happening on the one hand uh, and demoralizing to see what is happening in particular with one of our political parties in terms of uh, rather than being inclusive of um, everybody, uh, rather the ways of uh, pretty much shutting people out. And so my passion over the last five years has been this justice for all column. And, and that, uh, again, going back to your question, what changes have I seen? But both the technology uh, shift has been significant. Um, and then uh, what some are referring to as culture wars uh, and, and interpreters are on the front line of, of all of this. They're, they're right in the thick of this. And um, I, I actually worry about people's safety and well-being. And then the other thing, of course, is uh, climate change that Bill McKibben wrote about back in 1989, The End of Nature. And I used to use his book back in the back in the day. And I just saw in the news uh, today that Al Gore has come back on the scene to um, pretty much speak about the, the heat dome over the southwest states and the wildfires in Canada and Antarctica losing ice and the, the list goes on and on. But uh, it's it's remarkable to me that what was once forecast is happening, is happening uh, right in front of us in ways that I guess people couldn't have imagined, even though scientists said this is exactly what's going to happen. So I guess those, those three things in particular, climate change, um, the, the, the social changes uh, and technology uh, are, are, are things that jump out at me. I've argued through the years for interpreters to be very aware of what the mission of their organization is, what purpose it has. 
because so often we've been entertainment in a park or entertainment in a museum. When the budget cuts come, you're the icing, you're not the cake. And mm -hmm. I've always argued we should be the cake. We should be right. so something so instrumental to the sustainability of that organizational system because we get their purpose and we design programming and experiences that uh, connect people with that purpose. But it's it still doesn't happen some places. Well, you said you're writing legacy articles. What else are you up to? Because I'm aware retirement is not um, sitting in front of the TV all day. It, it's a lot of different things for each of us. Yeah, um, that's that's actually interesting because uh, I'm two months into my retirement and started out by going on the NAI study tour to Costa Rica. Vicky and I went and then visited uh, dear friends in Santa Fe, Dan and Kathy Dustin, the one who had the advice if I wanted a future, uh, who, who I've since written with quite a bit, not as much as Ted, but uh, quite a bit I've written with Dan Dustin um, in various journals. And uh, then we went up to the Eastern Sierra and uh, that's uh, John Muir's range of life, what he called the, the most beautiful mountain range in the world. And that's just about a six hour drive north of uh, where I am here in San Diego. And we get up there uh, two or three times a year, just, just love it up there, the Eastern side of the Sierra, which is basically uh, for your listeners, it's, it's going to be the other side of Yosemite. Yosemite is on the West side. The Eastern side is uh, a little more uh, rugged. Um, so anyway, back to back to back trips. And then there were a number of things I'd sort of put off over 43 years at San Diego State that needed to be dealt with. Uh, some of that having to do with home maintenance. And uh, just when I thought I was starting to catch up on some of that, uh, my air conditioner broke down a few days ago. And um, because of the demand for air condition repair people, uh, it's a little bit warm here right now. So uh, at this point, I'm looking to just get a bunch of things checked off. And once that happens, then I actually, I want to come up for air. I, I, I want to read some more. I want to do some more hiking with Vicki. Uh, the person most excited about my retirement is Vicki. And then second in line is my dog, who you may have seen in the background. It's it's a yellow Labrador. She's a, a, a She was training to be a service dog and she flunked out. And... He flunked out of service dog school. So I adopted her and uh, she was really a maniac early on, but uh, she settled down now. She's become a good trail dog. We were just up on Mount Laguna yesterday. So, uh, and hope to read some more. I know you're a reader. I happen to remember way back when you told me that you would um, put books on your device. And when you traveled, you'd, uh, you'd, you'd read the books that uh, you'd put on your device. So I, anyway, I want to do more reading as well. And then I'll figure out, okay, what uh, what do I really want to do uh, with this time? My norm, I'm, I'm, I'm broken on my norm right now. I'm not reading right now. I read on the, over the past dozen years, 60 to 100 books a year. And that was just the way I worked. I carry a Kindle with me everywhere I go. And I download 8, 10, 12 titles at a time. And I work through them. And I probably mm -hmm. read fiction three quarters 
80% of the time, but I do read some nonfiction as well. And I, back when I was at Tennessee Valley Authority, I actually enjoyed audiobooks a lot because they would give me a five hour drive over to Knoxville, Tennessee from uh, where I was at in Golden Pond, Kentucky. And I would put on uh, one of Stephen Covey's books about uh, being more efficient or whatever, more effective. And it was, mm -hmm. a, it was a great way to dig into those. I don't do as much of that sort of thing anymore, but I'm I'm still fascinated by other writers and what they bring to the imagination. And Lisa and I have continued to, to write some, but we don't ever get to conclusion with our books these days. <laughs> so, Oh, hmm. Um, are, are, is that in your future? Or are you going to um, put some I of these projects? I don't, don't, I don't know. Project. Yeah, no, I don't know. Um, yeah. It's We had a lot of fun writing a novel in 2006, 2005. And in 2007, it published and we, we won an international and a regional literary award with it. And it's got, you know, 470 stars on uh, Amazon called The Leopard Tree, but it's fiction. And for us, the passion has been travel. And we try to get back to East Africa almost every year. It's been, this is our 14th trip coming up in March. Wow. Wow. Well, that is something Vicki and I can aspire to because uh, we do want to travel. We'll have time now and being able to do so in the shoulder seasons, in, in the fall and in the spring and kind of avoid some of the crowds. Uh, we're definitely looking forward to that as part of the agenda of um, what, what we're going to be doing. USAID hired us to train guides. And uh, oh. that ended up and we we did that last year again. Uh, we were hired by the uh, African Parks Foundation to to do some more training in Nyongwe National Park, where we had worked many times before. But we also mm -hmm. like to take an eco tour to Tanzania, and go back to Serengeti. You can't see enough elephants. Is one of the things that we. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> uh, is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about? Oh. I, I think we covered all the bases. Oh, oh no, actually, I did want to ask you about being a coffee farmer. Well, it's a funny thing. When I was a child, we went to my grandparents' little farm in Illinois every Sunday and had chicken dinner and uh, fried chicken and egg noodles and green beans and corn and uh, mashed potatoes, gravy. And it was wonderful. Grandma and grandpa were farmers. They, he farmed with horses. Even when tractors came along, he just didn't believe in that. He continued to farm with horses. And if one of his horses was sick, he would sleep in the barn with it. And wow. they were part of the family. Well, as a child, I used to complain, why are we going out to the farm again on Sunday? And my mom would say, <laughs> and, and of course, I did a lot of nature exploration. But uh, Lisa and I, when we were traveling and training so much for NAI, if we got a week or two off, we'd say, where do you want to go? Do you want to try someplace new? And the answer was, no, let's go to Kona. <laughs> so yeah. when we started looking for property, a one-acre coffee farm looked like the perfect thing. Mm -hmm. 
and I spent my early morning hours today string trimming to get the grasses down uh, low enough that we can start picking coffee next week. And I love coffee. I love chocolate. And boy, do I love mangoes. So you'll have to wonder <laughs> what we're growing here. So, so wait, it, it, coffee and chocolate and mangoes? Oh, yeah. All th I, okay, I uh, my understanding was just coffee. So this is new to me. It was a coffee farm and it had 75 to 100 year old trees on it. And we actually kind of took the agroforestry approach of saying, well, coffee actually grows pretty well in the shade and uh, cacao trees could be intermingled amongst the coffee trees and both would do well with that. And then um, I, usually I just bought mangoes at the farmer's market or I picked them up off a, a tree that's right next to our farm. Mangoes are selling wholesale for $5 a pound. And I became fascinated by a, a mango farmer in Florida, Richard Campbell, uh, Dr. Richard Campbell. And he prunes mango trees, which if you if you just leave them alone, they get 80 feet tall, four feet in diameter, and you can't pick the mangoes because they're 60 feet up in the air. But mm. he prunes them as they grow so that you end up with an eight foot tall tree with about a 10 foot diameter, and it'll produce about 200 to 300 pounds of mangoes a year. And so it's a significant source of income. Mm -hmm. But I, I look forward to mango season. I freeze mangoes and put them in the uh, freezer. And yeah, farming's a passion. Oh, that sounds great. That that's wonderful that you you landed where, where you did and kind of knew what you wanted to do, and that traces back to your childhood. It really makes a connection because I think about my grandfather. He he was forced by his our family to retire at ninety one and move to town, and he died a year later of uh, arthrosclerosis. And until he was 91, he had gotten up at 4.30 every morning, milked five or six head of cows, uh, came into breakfast at six. After breakfast, he went back out and slopped the hogs and uh, plowed with his horses to put in his corn crop. He had a 60-acre farm. And I asked my mother, I said, was that farm successful? She said, well, uh, when they sold it, they owed the same amount of money on it they owed when they bought it. He had never retired $1 of debt. It was in the Kaskaskia River bottoms, and about every other year it would flood out and he'd lose his crop. Oh, no. And I said, well, doesn't he worry about all that debt all those years? If you ask him, she said, he, he says, I worry the day I have to go talk to the banker and renew the loan. Otherwise, I don't think about it. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> he got by. <laughs> well, right. and you from uh, some pretty sturdy stock. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, until the age of ninety-one, he was still doing all this. That's uh, that's good. He was a stalwart figure. I didn't know him well because I was a small child, and he was elderly when I came along. But my other grandfather was uh, a ditch digger and a grave digger. And mm. he had lost his father when he was 12 years old and uh, to an accident. 
he was operating a sawmill with a steam engine and his father got pulled into the the mill and killed 57 or 58 years old left nine children behind so my my grandfather on my father's side grew up having to support his other eight siblings along with his mother doing whatever they could do and so i'm aware that i was privileged my dad was pulled out of school in seventh grade to go to work on the railroad by his dad help support their, his siblings so here I'm, I'm the first generation that got to go to college and got to think about, well, what do you really want to do in the world? Yeah. What a good thing. What a good thing. Yeah, boy. Yeah. Well, I like that he he was still using the horses uh, in, instead of the tractors, because the analogy I think of right now for interpreters is that uh, you've got people like me who are going to sit down and from the beginning do the research rather than go to chat GPT. Uh, I, I would just assume, because I think that might take away a little of the process, uh, the research process, the creativity, um, orchestrating the endeavor in such a way that um, it might turn out differently. And uh, the little bit I've seen about AI uh, kind of frightens me. So I'm glad that he kept using his horses and didn't go to the tractors. Sometimes that's the best thing to do. I agree. And I, I tried chat. Uh, GPT as well. And I used it when I started with the podcast, I would say, what questions should I ask someone who's an expert in X, Y, and Z? And it would give me a pretty good list of questions. And what I really decided was better was to look at the, go to LinkedIn and read the bio of people I was going to interview or ask them for a CV, or uh, in some cases, look at their, at their book and what the bio in the book and find out what were their highlights of their career and make it more personal. And uh, I guess it's going to be where people who want to avoid personal effort go, but not where I want to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, Larry, it's been a pleasure to see you again and to chat. And uh, I wish you well with what you do in the Eastern Sierras hiking with Vicki and your other activities in life. And uh, don't hesitate if you get to the Big Island to come and visit. Well, it would be great to see both you and Lisa. Uh, so I wish you the best. Similarly, uh, both of you and uh, seeing more elephants in the, in the future. And uh, yeah, this has been a delight talking with you as well, Tim. Thanks, Larry, for joining me today on Reflections on Interpretation. Next week, I'll be talking with Kristen K. Robinson, a talented trainer of certified interpretive guides, a consultant in the interpretive field, especially with uh, tourism guides. And I'd like to thank Mark Stoffel for, again, for use of his wonderful mandolin music, in this case, Buckminster's Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. I remind you that Lisa Brochu will be teaching an interpretive planning course August 21st to 24th via Zoom. The day after that, the 25th, a contract management class. You can learn more about these at heartfeltassociates.com. And I will be teaching a certified interpretive guide course September 25th to October 4th. So join us for any of these that you would like. You can learn more about that at interpretnet.com. Have a wonderful week. Aloha.